It's the history of football we knows about And we want to expand what we know We'll become such intelligent gentry With every kick-to-kick show Beginning in the time 1870s Right through to the modern day Tune in for Timmy Coops and the Kazmaz To hear what they all have to say Right, welcome back to the 1982 season. Just Tim and Charlie here to talk the finalists. Yes. Their seasons, Charlie. The top five. The top five. Hey, we've got some big recruits from that top five as well to talk about. Oh, can't wait. Um, uh, and a very interesting grand final. The, uh, a very interesting ground invader. Ah, yes. Which we can talk about. Uh, so let's get stuck straight into it. Well, let's do it. So let's start from the bottom again and just give ourselves a bit of a reminder of who we've already spoken about. So in 12th place, we had Footscray, 11th, St Kilda, 10th was Collingwood, 9th, Geelong, 8th, we had Melbourne, 7th, Sydney. Oh, Sydney, yeah. Yeah. South Melbourne Swans. Yeah. 6th, Fitzroy, and now we're up to 5th spot where we have North Melbourne. So with 14 wins and 8 losses and a percentage of 109.6, this year, um, not much has changed. Captain by uh, Shimon Bush again and coached by Barry Cable. Um, let's hear from Mrs. Cable, Helen. Hmm. Barry tackles coaching just the same as he did playing footy. He gives it just as much time and effort. But I've noticed he's starting to get a little sharp with the kids and I on a Friday and Saturday. I suppose it's understandable with all the pressure of VFL coaching. All right. So some... Big names for North Melbourne debut. We've got Bruce Abernathy, Donald McDonald, who um, explained his naming on the front bar not too long ago. Yeah, yep. Uh, Brad Nemo, Phil Carmen has crossed from Essendon, his fourth club in about the same amount of time. Oh, gosh. Uh, and two big debutants from Western Australia, the Cracker brothers, Jim and Phil Cracker. Yes, so let's start talking about Jim there. So uh, James Cracker, the elder of the brothers, was first to make his way uh, to Perth and spent the 77 season playing for Claremont in 1978. Phil arrived at Claremont as well. Um, Jim was nimble, quick, and with superb disposal skills, but the problem was, if anything, exacerbated by his extraordinary courage, which often saw him ploughing in where angels would fear to tread, (laughs) Timmy. And then we got Phil, more outwardly placid than his older brother. Uh, Cracker uh, played the game with equal vim, panache, and effectiveness, most notably when in concert with his sibling. He was recruited by by Claremont from North... Mount Barker Football Club and had journeyed to the city to join his brother. There you go. So there we go. Um, also returning was Malcolm Blight, who had to be convinced to return for the 82 season. Um, when he was speaking to the president, he settled on three non-negotiables. He wanted Stephen Ick, Brian Wilson and Gary Dempsey gone. Yes, that's we've already spoken we, about we, Ick, haven't yeah. we? Yeah, so, so Ick and Wilson went to Melbourne, we know that. Um, <coughs> but... Um, Oh, and the reason being, he, he felt like they had let him down when he was coach That's North right. Melbourne. Um, so the first two were traded to Melbourne, but Dempsey stayed. Like He's in too good a form. You can't... I don't know. How do you make that call? Yeah. So he... Yeah, so that's what happened. It's a bit... It's, it's tricky, isn't it? Because it's like... You don't want to pander to him, but you don't want to... Like, it's club comes first. Yeah. Not individual. And surely it's like, well, we can deal with we're giving him part of what you want, but you need to figure this out too. Yes. Um, their first win was round two when the Swans 
travelled to Arden Street to take on the Roos, and it took the swan, it took the Roos just 20 minutes to get on top of the Swans. The spark was provided by the Cracker Brothers. Between them, they kicked seven goals. The final margin was 40 points. Round three, it was Phil Cracker and Kim Hodgman who led the Roos to a well-deserved win over the Lions by 64 points. Round four, the Bombers managed to quell the Cracker Brothers at Windy Hill, but the Roos proved they weren't reliant on their interstate imports. Uh, Kerry Good kicked five goals in a 17-point win. Round five, despite trailing by one point to the Pies at Arden Street at three-quarter time, the Roos took control in the last quarter, helped by former Pie himself, Phil Carmen, who made his debut for the Roos. He actually kicked four goals, not a bad one. <laughs> Ross Glenn Denning was in Brownlow form, dominating from go to woe. Round seven, it was a 50-goal shootout. The Roos defeated the Demons by 37 points at the MCG. Blight kicked seven of the Roos' 28 goals, while the Roos were regretting giving the Demons Brian Wilson. Hey. Round eight, the Saints were never in it against the Roos. North were much more skilled and better balanced, kicking 23 goals, 18-156. From the 24-minute mark of the first quarter to the 17-minute mark of the last quarter, the Saints could not score a goal. Uh, five five Roos players kicked three goals uh, in an all-round display of excellence. Round 10, Malcolm Blight kicked seven as they cruised to a 58-point win over the Dogs. Round 12 was their next win. They put in a big second quarter to take the lead from the Swans in Sydney, but the Swans almost recovered a five-goal margin in the last quarter to steal victory. Uh, the Cracker Brothers were great again in this six-point win. Round 13, North Melbourne hung on to beat the Lions by a point at Arden Street despite a goalless last quarter. The Lions scored only one goal from 11 scoring shots in the last quarter. Mm. Uh, round 14, they overran the Pies in the second half at Victoria Park. Schimmelbush and Carlin with four each. Round 17 against the Dees, the Kangaroos rode a blistering second half of the second quarter to victory at Arden Street. They piled on nine goals in that time to set up the winning lead. Dempsey dominated the ruck. Phil Cracker was more often than not on, at the drop of the ball. But despite the ease of this victory, North Melbourne President Bob Ansett accused the umpires of being biased. Um, also, Ruse coach Barry Cable had to be restrained by players from approaching the umpires at three-quarter time. Really? I'd like to see the, uh, the stats there. Yeah, interesting. Because like, to get so frustrated when you're winning quite convincingly yeah. means it doesn't sound great, does it? No. Round 18, the Ruse easily beat the Saints at Moorabbin. Blight kicked eight and the Ruse kicked seven goals from free kicks while the Saints didn't get any from free kicks. Maybe that's the result of the, uh, the discussion with the umpires. <laughs> very lopsided, very trying to balance that up. Uh, the only downside to this was a knee injury to Arnold Brightus ending his season. Uh, the Kangaroos beat the Cats in 68 points in round 19. They got over the Dogs in round 20 with Phil Kelly kicking the solitary goal in the final quarter that helped them maintain the lead over the Dogs, winning by 14. But they lost the last two games of the season, which meant they gave up any chance of having the double chance. Yeah, unfortunately. Um, so, Blighty was the lead goal kicker down at North this year with 103. Yeah, Great year and from we'll, the talk, man. we'll talk about his 100th when we get to the finals. Yeah, beautiful. Um, 37 for Shimmer as captain, second on that list. So there was really only one, only one avenue to goal at North Melbourne this year. And the Sid Barker medal in 82 went to Ross Glendenning for the first time. Yes. Yeah. Nice. Yep. So there we go. Uh, moving us up to fourth spot, we have those Dons. The same old Essen Dons with 16 wins, 6 losses and 125.2%. So this top four is really strong. As, as we could see from, you know, those bottom teams getting no wins, you're always going to have that same balance at yeah, the top, Yeah, and, right? and we talked last week about the difference between, what was it, like 7th and 8th 
like yeah, in it, terms it was of wins. what three, four, four, then seven and eight, but then twelve. Okay, so, so, it so a few up. big gaps there, yeah, isn't there? big gaps, yeah. Um, so sorry, yes, 16, 16 wins, six losses, one hundred twenty-five point two percent. Captain by Neil Danaher and coached by Kevin Sheedy, and here's Geraldine Sheedy to talk to us now. Geraldine, another one of those great names. Yep. Coaching does make them a bit crankier, but there's so much pressure in the job. Kevin becomes terribly uptight. He'll sit up late at night watching video replays of the matches. I'll hear him ranting about something, and I'll sympathise with him. All right, so yeah, as you said, Neil Danaher named the captain of the club despite being injured, and who is also subsequently the youngest Essendon captain ever. Still, to this day? I believe so. Yeah, yeah. wow. Um, some debutants include Billy Duckworth, Wayne Otway and Anton Gurbach. Round one was a great way to start the season. An eight-goal opening quarter against the Dogs set the scene for the Dons' 109-point victory over them. Otway and Thompson kicked five goals each. Timmy Watson picked up his jumper number worth of disposals. <laughs> two. Round two, they started the match against the Blues well and led by 23 at half-time. The Blues fought back in the third quarter, but it was big bomber men, Justin and Simon Madden, as well as Paul Vanderhaar, who helped the Bombers to a 26-point win. Um, acting captain Ronnie Andrews was reported, so he was replacing Danaher while he was trying to come back from his knee injury. Mm-hmm. Um, so Ronnie Andrews was the captain. He was reported and suspended for five matches for striking blue Phil Malin. So Tim Watson took over captain duties in this time. Okay. Um, following the Don's embarrassing loss to Richmond in front of, in front of 90,000 people, Simon Madden was dropped. And also remembering he'd been dropped as captain as well. Yeah. It was a real season of reckoning for him. It got worse because round five, Madden arrived late to the reserves game against the Lions, so he was demoted to a reserves bench player. Oh. Lucky for him, he was brought back in in round six. Uh, so he travelled to Sydney and took on the Swans in the mud. Um, despite trailing the Swans by three goals during time on, the Bombers crawled out of the mud with four late goals to steal a one-goal victory. The first team to beat the Swans in Sydney at an official home game. There you go. Yeah. Add it to our little bag of achievements. <laughs> like being the first team to beat the Hawks when they were named the Hawks. <laughs> That's right. Um, now, on the eve of round seven, Neil Danaher stepped up his training load as he looked to return to lead his side soon. But on a late drill of the night, so he was doing some drills late at mm-hmm. night. Last drill of the night, his knee gave way again. Ugh. His season was over before it even began. Yeah. Uh, therefore, Ron Andrews was captain for the remainder of the year. Yeah. Round seven, the Bombers humiliated the buyers at Windy Hill with the defenders holding the Pies goalless until the 10-minute mark of the second quarter. Madden kicked four, Vanderhaar three, and a 55-point drubbing. Round eight, the Bombers played a hard, tough game to beat the Hawks by a goal at Princes Park. Glenn Hawker was unbeatable with 33 kicks, while Kevin Walsh, Bill Duckworth, and Vanderhaar provide a big drive for the Dons. The final scoreboard showed the Bombers seven points ahead after the goal umpires had conferred post-match. Because uh, there was a bit of discrepancy there. Yeah. Round nine, the Dons beat the Demons by 48 points at Windy Hill, but the story of this game was the argy-bargy between Ronnie Andrews and Jacko Jackson. Uh, Rotten Ronnie was actually the tolerant one here. Jacko reported for striking and giving two weeks. <laughs> uh, they beat the Saints and the Cats. Then in round 12, they ruthlessly crushed the Blues at Windy Hill. The Bombers were mean and relentless as they bruised the Carlton bodies and egos. The Bombers played an even game with no real standout in a 10-goal victory. Blues coach David Parkin was full of praise for the way that the, they had dismantled his team. Yeah, huge. Considering, you know, we haven't spoken about Carlton yet, so we know that they do very well this year. Oh, they're so. the reigning premiers. Yeah. Uh, now, following round 12 was the tragic death of Bill Hutchinson. Uh, yeah, Essendon, two-time yeah, medalist. Yeah. 
champion. Um, round 14, the Bombers and the Kangaroos played a seesawing battle at the MCG with the Bombers gaining ascendancy, but then the Roos kept coming back. If it wasn't for a towering Simon Madden mark and goal, it would have gone the Roos way, but the Dons held on to win by eight. Round 15 was considered by many to be Simon Madden's best game for the Bombers at that point. 22 disposals, 11 marks, 8 goals. Uh, he was dominant in the Don's 85-point mauling of the Lions at Windy Hill. Nice. So maybe dropping him and like that wake-up call has really helped. Yeah, him. well, I was going to say, like it is a real sort of touch-and-go thing to do, isn't it? Because some, some people would just send them, out the, yeah, send them out the door being like, well, why would I want to be here? Yeah. So it seems to have worked out well. It's a real gamble it, doing uh, that sort of thing. Is, yeah. Round 17, the Bombers held on in a titanic struggle against the Pies at Victoria Park. Twice in time on, the, bomb, the scores were level, but again it was Simon Madden with the steadying goal. His fourth of the game to earn an 11-point win. Not, round 19, we beat the Demons at Waverley. Round 20, the Bombers came from away from Moravan with a 14-point victory over the Saints. Round 21, they were lucky to beat the Cats at Windy Hill. The Cats led by seven at the 24-minute mark of the last quarter before Schultz and then Madden, but Justin this time, <laughs> kicked the goal to put them in front. The final margin was 11. Round 22, the Bombers' season ended the way it started with a mauling of the Dogs. They trailed by a goal at quarter time. Then they piled on goals with eight, 13 and eight goals across the rest of the game. Oh. The margin was 146 points. The Bombers' biggest win of all time. This is still their highest ever score, 32 goals, 16, 208. The only time they've ever kicked above 200 points. Wow. Um, Haar kicked five. Bahaja had 35 disposals. Huge. Um, now, some interesting off-field stuff as well with the Bombers here. There was moves by the local council to re- relocate the Bombers to the showgrounds to get the, kick them out of Windy Hill. Oh, really? Obviously, it didn't happen. No, yeah. yeah it's interesting. Interesting notes there. So, there we go. Hmm. Um, got, well, good to finish on a, I mean, almost a massive... Some, um, yes and no. I mean, sometimes we talk about this where you have a, a, a big win heading into finals can be a disservice. Because we talked about that. When was it? Two, three years ago? When Geelong absolutely their last trampled. two games, Frio and Gold Coast, I yeah. think they won by. Was that 2019 or 2020? Might have been one of the, I think it was 2019. Mm. They came in up in, on two big wins. Yeah. And it just it doesn't harden you. No. No, even even if you're trying to keep everything under wraps, it's almost impossible mm. to, isn't it? Um. So our lead goal kicker down at Windy Hill this year was, of course, Simon Madden with 49. Yeah. Um, way not way just behind him with 46 a real crossroads season for Simon Madden but turning the corner yeah and the Crichton medal in 1982 went to Terry Danaher so at least one of the Danahers yeah, was out on the yeah stepping up where his brother yeah. was not um, so that takes us up to third spot where we have those blues the, rain, the current premiers the reigning premiers uh, sitting with 16 wins one draw and five losses, 127.5%. Captained by Mike, Mike Fitzpatrick and coached by David Parkin. And here is Lynn to tell us about that. It's an awful strain on any family that you have to adjust and lend support. David is always up until the early hours preparing his work for college and his football notes. His patience level has dropped. We're often pleased when he leaves home on a Saturday. But last week, he was lovely and really charming. He must have felt good and quite confident. Uh, these names really date, like <laughs> the area. Like the only Lins I know are quite older as well. Well, that's they're the same, probably the same vintage. Yeah, right? absolutely. Yeah. All right. So some debutants at Carlton include Alan Montgomery, Ross Ditchburn, who they picked up in that preseason draft, 
Paul Meldrum, Mike Buckley, veteran David Clark also crossed from Geelong. Now, after a draw with the Lions and a loss to the Bombers, the Blues got their first win in round three against the stuttering Magpies. The gates were shut at Victoria Park at 12.30 as more than 36,000 people crammed in to see the traditional Carlton-Collingwood clash. Uh, the Blues were brilliant in the third term, adding nine goals to two to reverse a four-goal deficit. Wayne Johnson best on ground after Ken Hunter was knocked out. Round four was another close first half of the Hawks this time. Fans would then witness the most explosive 10 minutes of football ever by the Blue Baggers, starting from the 20-minute mark of the third quarter, which resulted in 10 goals. Sorry, seven goals and 10 for the quarter and effectively ending the game. The Blues winning by 61 points. What, seven goals in what, like seven minutes, basically? Something like that, yeah. Jeez. Yeah, the 20-minute mark of the third quarter. Yeah. Uh, round five, the Blues defeated Melbourne by 10 points, but the inaccurate Blues, who by kicking 9-22, had to fight all day, not taking the lead until the final term. In round six, they had a win over St Kilda. In this game, an equal, a record of equal most points ever scored in the fourth quarter was created. Carlton kicked 10, St Kilda 8. Behinds. Mm. <laughs> uh, Blues winning by 38 there. Round seven, Carlton defender Rod Curley Austin was best of field in a magnificent display against the Cats. He stuck like glue to Geelong speeds to Michael Turner and played a perfect tagging role. The Blues eventually won by 61 points after the Cats had led it 24 minutes into the third quarter. Round eight, Carlton and Footscray fought out an entertaining match at Western Oval. The Dogs led by five points at the last change, but the Blues, with far superior skills and running ability, stormed home in the last quarter, kicking six goals 11. David Clark kicked six goals in the second half for Carlton. Uh, in round nine, Princess Park was jumping when the Blues shattered the, C- the Swans with a 12-goal first quarter on their way to a 102-point win. Half-forward Wayne Johnson capped off an excellent game with five goals. The Buzz kicked six, who was also fantastic. Round 10, Carlton Richmond at Princess Park. It was like a final. It had all the atmosphere and pressure of a game in September. There was a lot of physical contact and right throughout it was nip and tuck. Defensive football was the order of the day. A six-goal burst at the start of the last quarter sealed the game for the Blues. Round 11, the Blues were behind North Melbourne all day, only to steal victory with minutes remaining. North fans were livid about some of the free kicks that were missed. Marchesani kicked four goals. Rod Austin had clashed with Phil Cracker during the game in which Phil was left a bit groggy after the match. It was deemed a hard hit but fair. In the social rooms after the game, Jim Cracker confronted Rod Austin and had to be restrained, and this uh, had to be stopped from boiling over into a big brawl. Wow. Um, Carlton then got walloped by the Bombers, which we talked about to the tune of 10 goals. Just wanted to put that in there. Yeah, of course you did. Round 13 at Princess Park against Collingwood. The Pies started well and were more enthusiastic than Carlton. And the first three quarters of this very windy day were tight. The Pies were on fire, but not the football team. The Pie Stand. <laughs> the Pie Stand at Princess Park caught fire, mysteriously. Naturally, the fire brigade did arrive. The flames were doused and no one was injured apart from the fragile magpie psyche that their team and their team on the scoreboard. The Blues put in a strong finish to win by 27 points. <laughs> Round 15, Jimmy Buckley of Carlton received best on ground honours for his sterling efforts against the Ds in a 17-point win. Round 16, it was Ditchburn who kicked an amazing 12 goals in a whitewash of the Saints at Waverley. Ditchburn would equal the efforts of Greg Kennedy from 10 years earlier in kicking 12 for the Blues. Um, the only other player for do, to do it for Carlton was who? Kicked 12 goals, 1921. Um, the Silver King. <laughs> Not Kane. too early for that. <laughs> uh, 1921. For, oh, um, Soapy Valance. Oh, good try, I know. Horry Clover. Horry Clover. Yeah. Am I in the right era? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Soapy Valance was a little bit, a little yeah, bit, a little later. bit later. Yeah. yeah. Uh, round eighteen, the Blues poleaxed a woeful Footscray outfit at Princess Park with ten goals nine in the first quarter. The game was over within minutes. 
The Blues continued to build up an impressive head of steam ahead of the final series. Ditchburn with another six goals. The team had 51 scoring shots to the Dogs' 22. Uh, the score of 30 goals, 21, 201 was Carlton's second highest ever scoreline and, and their greatest winning margin over the Dogs. Dark season for the Dogs. That's three games they've lost at least by 100 points. Yeah, not ideal. Uh, in round 20, more than 71,000 people saw a parachutist deliver the Commonwealth Games baton to Ron Clark at the MCG pre-game. Then Richmond were hell-bent on avenging their loss to the Blues earlier in the season, but the Blues machine went into action. Despite it being a physical game, with Glasgow being knocked out and then Buckley knocking out Mick Malthouse, the Blues were too strong, too quick and too skillful and ended up beating them in a season-turning game for the Blues, who won by 28 points. Round 21, taking on the Kangaroos, 39 goals were kicked in a score fest at Princes Park. Ditchburn kicked nine, the Blues won by 70. And finally, round 22, Ditchburn kicked seven goals for the Blues as they downed the courageous Lions by 39 points. But Ross Ditchburn, what a pickup in the preseason draft. Seriously. Did he lead the goal kicking? He certainly did. He had 61 yeah. as the lead goal kicker uh, for them. Um, and James Buckley took out the best and fairest. Yes, yeah, nice. the uh, John Nichols medal, I should say. Uh, which takes us up to Hawthorne in second spot there. Uh, so with 17 wins and 5 losses, 131.6%. Huge. Um, captained by Lee Matthews and coached by Alan Jeans. And here is Mary. As far as I can see, Alan hasn't changed a bit. He's still the nice man he was when he first took up coaching. It's his job and I prefer to stay in the background. Lovely. Now, some huge names debuting oh, with yeah. the Hawks. Uh, three specifically we've got to talk about. Richard Loveridge was another one, but um, two we know very much as Hawks players, Gary Bacanara and Dermot Brereton. But there's a third player who debuted for them this season who is not known as a Hawks player, but no. is known more as a cat, and that is Gary Ablett Sr. Yes. So let's talk about uh, those three now. So I'll start with Gary Bacanara. Um Considered an outstanding junior footballer and cricketer, in 79 he began his senior league career with Subiaco and quickly attracted attention from <coughs> Victorian clubs. Uh, renowned for his superb high marking and kicking skills, whether passing to teammates or shooting for goal, as well as his performances in big games, he was named in two separate teams of the century, both on the half-forward flank. Uh, Dermy? Yep. There have been better all-round footballers than Dermot Brereton, but few who have possessed both his flamboyance and his big-game temperament. Brereton, nicknamed the kid, played most of his career in the centre-half forward position at the Hawthorne Football Club. Uh, he was re recruited from Frankston. Yeah. Uh, and Gary Ablett. Yeah. Mercurial. <laughs> uh, is one of the most supremely gifted footballers ever to play the game. Notoriously poor trainer, but this didn't prevent him from from producing football of unparalleled genius on match days. After playing for several country teams and in, around, in and around his hometown of Druin in Victoria, he was recruited by Hawthorne and made his VFL debut in 1982. And no uh, AFL-VFL highlight reel is complete without probably being about at least a quarter Gary Ablett, right? You'd imagine. And that mark against Collingwood, it's not a mark. Yeah. <laughs> when he drops. <laughs> Um, Timothy, don't get too controversial. Okay. Come on. Just a shout out as well to AustralianFootball.com, which is where I get a lot of those biographies from that, yes. we, that we do. Um, all right, round one, the Hawks broke away from the Saints in the second half of their match to win 119 to 88. The Hawks' experience was a key factor. Jeff Ablett kicked four goals. Bacanara made his debut a day after gaining his clearance. 
Round two, the Hawks took on the Cats with skipper Lee Matthews back in. Terry Wallace was at his brilliant best with 33 kicks, five handballs and seven marks, as well as three goals and a 19-point win. This was also Gary Ablett's debut. My God. Poetically against the Cats. Really? Yeah. Now, around this time, they were in need of a ruckman, so they acquired dumped demon ruckman Michael Byrne, who made an immediate impression with the Hawks during round three's game against the Dogs. They destroyed the Dogs in round three. Signs were ominous early when the Hawks' defence held them to two points in the first. But from then on, the Hawks kicked eight, 11 and six goals to the Dogs' seven. The Hawks won by 143 points against the Dogs. (laughs) That's four. Um, Michael Byrne, their new pick-up, kicked eight. Why did the D's get rid of him? Uh, Lethal added six, and Gary Bacanara had 36 disposals. This was the Hawks' highest score and biggest win and the Dogs' biggest loss. (laughs) So it's funny because this is the Dogs' biggest loss of all time. Yeah. Only to be broken like later 20 on, weeks yeah. later. Oh, God. weeks later. Round five, the Hawks used relentless tackling to overthrow the unbeaten Richmond at Princess Park. And in beating them by 18 points, took top spot of the ladder. Tuck and Matthews were excellent. Um, Ablett, in this game, Gary Ablett was credited with kicking only one goal. But in 2019, through research, it was discovered he'd actually kicked two. Hey, okay. Remember that, um, that episode we talked about the 1,000 goal kickers? Yeah. And we talked about how... We actually discovered there was a new one. He'd already kicked it. When he kicked his thousands, it was actually his His thousands. Round six, the Hawks managed to hold the Roos stars off and turned in their own big third quarter. They kicked 7-3 to the Roos, three behinds to take control of the match and win by 34 points. In round nine, the Pies led the Hawks by 28 points in the third quarter and looked set to record just their second win of the year. But the Hawks, led by Bacanara, Gary Ablett and John Kennedy, led the Hawks revival. The eventual margin was 22. Round 10, the Hawks' second quarter was the catalyst for a 54-point win over the Swans. Uh, Michael Byrne with another six there. Round 11, they continued with the big scores the following week against the Demons. Matthews was brilliant in gathering 29 kicks, 10 handballs, four goals. Um, They won 178. They kicked 26 goals, 22, 178 to win by 79 points. Matthews dominated round 12 against the Cats. He racked up in that game 26 kicks, 13 marks, eight handballs and five goals. Um, interestingly enough, Bill Goggin blamed the Cats for the loss. He said, you know, we destroyed ourselves. It wasn't the Hawks. Oh, really? It was us being poor. Round 14, the Hawks beat the Blues by 34. Round 15, the Hawks steamrolled the Tigers at the MCG. Uh, a nine-goal burst proving the Tigers' undoing. It was, again, Michael Byrne with five goals who starred. Round 16 was a win over the arch enemy from the 70s, the Kangaroos. Byrne kicked eight this time as the Hawks kicked a record score of 32 goals, 14, 206. Cracking the 200-point mark for the first time. The Hawks went into the round 18 clash with the Bombers with Lethal Lee under a bit of an injury cloud. Mm. But he shrugged off any suggestions he was under the weather with an inspiring game to spearhead a Hawks victory, including very famously taking out the point post. Oh, this is the game. This is the game. Oh, the post is broken. Matthews hit it. (laughs) Talk about a he-man. In this game, the Hawks were actually down by 19 points at three-quarter time, but in the last quarter, they kicked seven goals, five to win by three goals. Yeah, so in part of that last quarter fury, he took a mark on the boundary and ran into the yeah the goalpost. Yeah, because it doesn't break on it doesn't break when he hits it. It's at it, the top. Yeah, top it, it comes back and it kind of yeah it sort of rips on the second go. I think doesn't it? I can't remember. Uh, yeah, uh, round nineteen, Lethal was again the main man for the Hawks at Princess Park in the nineteen point win, a twenty two point win. Um, he was stuck in the forward line with a leg injury, but still managed to kick eight goals. Yeah, good on him. Uh, they put the dagger through the heart of the Swans with a 64-point win, ending their finals run. Um, against the Demons in round 21, they built up a 43-point lead at, at three-quarter time, but the Demons recovered, and they actually hit the front by a point at the 23-minute mark of the last quarter. Oh. Wouldn't upset be on the cards. 
But the Hawks steadied and two goals won in the match. During this game, though, a major brawler erupted in the second quarter after Lee Matthews knocked out Peter Giles. Ron Barassi said this about Matthews afterwards. It's a shame that a champion has to resort to these kind of tactics. Uh, No action was taken against Matthews. In round 22, the Hawks tuned up for the finals with a big win over the Saints at Princes Park. After an even first half, the Hawks turned on the power kicking 15-15 to 5-5 to win the match by 88 points. Bucky with six goals and Colin Robertson with 33 disposals. Huge. What a a few great pickups there from from the Hawks. It's ridiculous. And we haven't even talked about um, Dermot Broughton yet because he hasn't made his debut yet. No, and not not a lot there said about Gary either. Like, no, really? I mean round twenty two was his last match with them. Yeah, and he will go off in the uh, eighty three season into the wilderness. Yeah, yeah, and he'll come back soon. Yes, he certainly will. Uh, so best and fairest for the well, the Peter Crimmins medal in uh, nineteen eighty two went to Lethal Lee. Uh, oh, not surprising. Lee, he was also their lead goal kicker with seventy four. Um, so that takes us to the top of the ladder. Surprising that the, it wasn't Hawthorne with some of those ridiculous wins mm. that you just talked about, but it wasn't. It but was. The, but the Hawks are definitely on the rise. Oh yeah. yeah. It was Richmond, the Tigers, sitting in uh, in um, as our minor premiers with eighteen wins, four losses, and one hundred and twenty six point two percent. I'm telling you, we heard it two years ago when we talked to Bruce Monteith after the nineteen eighty Grand Final. The eighties is the decade of the Tigers. Absolutely. It's going to be great. Yeah, it's continuing. Yeah, We're seeing it's it here. It's going to be awesome. Yeah. The momentum just, it's, it's on the way. Yeah. Uh, so, captained by David Cloak and coached by Francis Burke. Uh, and here is Kerry to talk to us. I can hug him now without worrying about crushing bruised ribs or other things he had suffered on a Saturday. But the family doesn't see as much of him. Francis has always been quiet and a deep thinker. If he's worried, he sits down and thinks about it. All right, some big debutants for the Tigers as well. Yes, uh, we've got Wayne Shand, but we've got two star Indigenous players. In one, Phil Egan; the other is a very famous name, Morris Rioli. Yeah. Uh, so let me talk about Morris Rioli. So, born into the well, not yet famous, but to be fa- mm. very famous, Rioli footballing family from Melville Island off the coast of the Northern Territory. Young Rioli learnt the game at. Garden Point Orphanage on the island. He was educated at St. John's College in Darwin and joined St. Mary's. Uh, a scout from South Fremantle spotted the 16-year-old and lured him to Western Australia, where he combined incomparable deafness of touch and great skill with tremendous toughness, this last trait being in part to a legacy of his boxing background. Mm. So came over to Richmond in 1982. Um, so the 1982 season started for Richmond in round two because they, the VFL did that thing again where they took a match out of a later round and poured it before round one. Oh, yeah, it makes sense. So Richmond and Fitzroy played <laughs> round two on the 20th of March, which was a week before round one started. <laughs> so, okay. And they won that game by 41 points. Nice. Yeah, Brian Taylor was excellent. He started the season in great form, kicked eight goals in the 41-point victory. In round one... <laughs> The Tigers had a three-goal win over the Kangaroos. The Tigers were able to hold Gary Dempsey to zero marks for only the second time since 1967. Yeah, wow. He's bread and butter and he couldn't do it. Round three, in front of 90,564 people at Waverley, the Tigers embarrassed the Bombers to the tune of 62 points. Robert Wiley had a day out uh, with 33 disposals and seven goals. Round four, they continued their hot start to the season with a good, strong 32-point win over the Pies. Round six, despite having less scoring shots than the Demons, the Tigers were able to earn a hard-fought 10-point victory. BT's big last quarter, one of the key factors, he kicked three last quarter goals to finish with six. 
Round seven, they were made to earn their 26-point win over the Saints, who got near them, got two points, got within two points of them in time on, but couldn't quite finish the job. They were lucky to beat the Cats in round eight. They kicked 11 goals from 34 scoring shots. And although they had a five-goal lead at the last break, they had to hold on as the Cats came roaring back and fell just two points short. The other talking point from this day was the report of Kevin Bartlett. The only time in his 402-game career he got reported. Really? Yeah, so Bruce Nankervis was uh, playing on him and close-checking him all day. KB warned him, said, you know, I'll clock you if you keep doing this. Stop it or I'll, I'll clock you kept doing it so KB turned around and whacked him in the face splitting his eyebrow um, it was the only report of his career but he got off he got off punching someone in the face <laughs> yeah how he's an ornament to the game <laughs> he's a good record I suppose uh, around nine the dogs were ferocious in an effort to unsettle the Tigers at the G and trailed by only four points at quarter time but the Tigers used the ball better and thanks to Rioli Wiley and seven BT goals they won by 41 points in round 11, the Swans used their pace to worry the Tigers all day, but allowed the Tigers, led by Jim Jess, back into the game uh, to hold a 13-point lead late in the match. But the Swans didn't give up. They kept attacking until the final bell, but the final margin scored showed the Tigers ahead by one. Round 12. Now, remember we talked about the MCG getting a new scoreboard that you can watch replays on? Yes. So you'll love this. Round 12, they took on the Lions at the MCG. The last round of world boxing title between Larry Holmes and Gary Cooney was broadcast on the screen. Fantastic. As the players were doing their warm-up. How good's that? Uh, Tigers were led to a hard-fought win over the, ti- over the Lions by Brian Taylor's 10 goals. The highlight of the first half was a collision between Jim Jess and Gary Wilson, which resulted in Jess being carried off and Wilson then being booed for the rest of the game. Tigers won by 38. <laughs> Round 13, the Tigers were able to hold a rampant Bombers at bay by 17 points. Bartlett and BT with four each. In Round 14, they held off a determined Collingwood by 22 points at Victoria Park. Round 16, after staying in touch with League Late, League leaders for the first quarter, the Demons fell away. Morris Rioli smashed Brian Wilson and the Tigers had too many good players at Stormway after quarter time with a 75-point victory. Round 17, Tigers big man Mark Lee broke Saints' hearts, booting nine goals two from full forward in an 83-point romp at the G. Rioli had 14 kicks, 17 hand passes and kicked two goals, one from the middle of the ground. Then they spoiled Cat uh, in Nankervis's 300th game with a seven-goal-to-one opening quarter. The Tigers' defence held the Cats to only three goals in the first three quarters. Cats kicked eight in the last to bring the margin back under 100. Mark Lee again in devastating form. Had an easy win over the Dogs in round 19. The Blues upset them at the G the following week. Round 21, they took on the Swans and they started on the back foot. They were held goalless in the first half while the Swans shot to a 48-point lead. But the Tigers reeled them in. They kicked nine goals in the second to get back in the contest. By three-quarter time, led by 20, the final margin was 17. BT kick seven, Jeff Raines was again brilliant. And finally, the Tigers season finished off with a 19-point win over the Roos. Roach was match winner with three goals, and Mick Malthouse was best on ground. Amazing. Yeah. There you go. So they they demolished a few teams, like, yeah. but not not the same way that Hawthorne did. No. Well, what's the percentages like? Percentage, both very high, 131 to 126, yeah. but yeah, different. Yeah. yeah, which is very interesting. So uh, the high goal kicker at Richmond, leading goal scorer at Richmond, was BT with uh, 71, getting off to that great start, as we said, in round, yeah. in round, two. round two. Yeah. Um, and the best and fairest, the Jack Dyer medal, went to newcomer Maurice Rioli. Yeah. Incredible. Mm. Um, Not the last award he'll win this year either. Surely the, um, the uh, rising star. Oh, yeah. yeah. Well, no. No. He's too old. Oh. Ah. Oh. Yeah. 
Oh, well. You've got to be 21 or under. 21 or under. Sense. Okay, well, there you go. So, Timmy, that takes us to finals. Well, just oh, before, no. Just before we get to finals, Coles, Coles goals. Coles goals. I'm going to say Hawthorne. Yeah. Uh, 409 goals. <laughs> Unbelievable. Yeah. Um, all right, Brownlow. The Brownlow, yes. And you'll be happy about this. It's another demon. Hey, well, actually, not another demon because it hasn't been a demon since quite a while. 1946. Yeah. Don Cordner. Yeah. Um, Melbourne sentiment Brian Wilson became yet another ex-Bulldog to win the Brownlow medal. So after Quinlan and Round won it in the previous season, yeah. Brian Wilson, another ex-Bulldog. He polled 23 votes, including seven best-on-ground performances. The first demon since Don Corder in 46. Strange considering the great success Melbourne had over those years. Very impressive from a team with only eight wins as well. Happened more often those days. Yeah. Uh, Wilson's coach, Bron Barassi, said last night that Wilson was a deserving winner. He had had, an, had a great year. He's exceptionally good on the training track and, and gives that spark that everyone needs. So he finished with 23 votes. Second was Ross Glendenning with 18. Terry Wallace and Lee Matthews with 17 each on thir- third. So probably taking votes off each other. Mm, yeah. So ex-Bulldog, ex-North Melbourne, goes to the Demons and Shines. Where everyone wants to be. Let's talk finals. So first off, we had our qualifying final between uh, Hawthorne and Carlton. Yes. Yep. Our first final was, uh, yeah, not the elimination final, sorry. Our qualifying final between Hawthorne and Carlton uh, at the MCG in front of 70,000 people. And, geez, didn't Hawthorne come out swinging? Well, they did. The Hawks actually gambled on playing Terry Wallace and Peter Knight who were underdone as well. It was a high-quality match between these two Princess Park tenants with only five points in it at half-time. However, the, an 11-goal third quarter showcased Carlton's brilliance in what was probably their most spectacular game since the 1972 Grand Final. What a, what a game, what a time to kick that many goals. Yeah. Wayne Harms turned it on during the third quarter with four goals, one snap from the boundary line, an absolute highlight, and, and it saw Carlton take control of the game. Ditchburn kicked six, Clark four, but it wasn't all rosy for the Blues. Peter Bazasto received a week's suspension for abusive language towards the umpire. And the dominator, Wayne Johnson, was reported and suspended for two matches for striking David Polkinghorne of Hawthorne. So if he's any chance of playing, Carlton need to play two more games before the grand final. Yeah. Wow. Tricky that. Yeah, so Carlton winning there by 58 points. Uh, 16-9, 105, nowhere near good enough for Carlton's 25-13-163. So our elimination final then. Played on the same day. Same day at Waverley in front of 50,000 people. Uh, And we've got Essendon coming up against North Melbourne. And based on the season, you would have thought that uh, North Melbourne was sort of done and dusted. Oh, yeah, Bombers... You know, coming after a 142-point win over the Dogs. Yeah. Riding high. And, and North sort of just scraping in there. Mm. Mm. But no. Well, the Dons were without their captain, Ron Andrews, and Bill Duckworth was also out. This is Gary Dempsey's 300th match. Um, but the Kangaroos started on fire. Six goals, three of the Bombers, one, three in the first quarter. Mm. Schimmelbush was inspirational to his teammates, and Malcolm Blight continued his Coleman medal form. He kicked five goals for the match. Um, the Bombers clawed their way back to level scores early. Um, but led by Gary Dempsey and Stephen McCann, the Roos eventually won by 13 points. Yes. Um, Carmen was suspended, was reported for striking Kevin Walsh, but escaped with suspension. And this is the fifth time in the last 10 years the Bombers have failed to win a final. Yeah. It sounds all too familiar. Yeah, doesn't it? No, look, it was interesting. Apart, if that, um, they hadn't run off in that first quarter, it would have been 
a very, very close game. Yeah, it's a I mean, it still was. It's but. a lesson to learn. And, and knowing what comes for the Bombers, I'm okay with it. Yeah. Um, because, you know, it's very similar to at the moment where we've got this record of yeah, you know, 18 years finals. without a final. Yeah. So, yeah, so it's, it's been a monkey on our back before and it is again. Yep. And they always hop off eventually. Eventually. Yeah. Uh, so that takes us to the first semi-final again at Waverley the week later with 65,000 in front of 65,000 people. We have Richmond versus Carlton. Uh, so uh, ladder leaders versus Carlton there. And so Richmond took the lead after five minutes against the Blues and never looked back. Mm-hmm. The Blues missed their two suspended stars and lost Jeff Southby early on as well. The margin was out to 40 by half time, and the crowd expected a stereotypical Blues comeback in the third quarter. But no, the Tigers, Brian Wood and Peter Welsh kicked two quick goals and that all but killed the contest. Uh, David Cloak finished with five as the Tigers ran out 23-point winners. Unluckily, Mick Malthouse injured his shoulder and was, uh, was now in doubt for the grand final. The only happy person was uh, the dominator, Wayne Johnson. Because if now if they can beat the Hawks, he'll be able to play in the grand final. Yes. Yeah, yeah true. Uh, yeah, so 16-17, 113 from Richmond, too good for Carlton's 13-12-90 there. And on the same day at the MCG in front of 61,000 people, we had Hawthorne versus North Melbourne. So uh, those rivals back together in a final. Yeah. Um, Wallace and O'Halloran were out injured, so in came Dermot Brereton for his first game. Ablett was considered, but his body wasn't as ready as Dermies was. Dermies was considered match ready. The kid. Yeah. And he was great against the Roos. So the game started on even terms. Malcolm Black kicked his 100th goal for the season after the first quarter siren had rang. Um, Peter Knights didn't play in the second half with an injury. The league continued to seesaw for the match, but the Hawks slowly started to take control across the second half with increased pressure and calm heads. Brereton capped the fabulous debut with five goals, um, as well as lethal with four goals and 37 disposals. The final margin was 52 points. Yep. Yep, just way too good. So North Melbourne, 18-614. Hawthorne, 24-22-166. And it's just, it adds the, to that legend of uh, Demi Bruner, doesn't it? Yeah, huge, huge scores in these finals. The whole season. Yeah, they've been massive, which is very interesting. So that takes us to our prelim between Hawthorne and Carlton in front of 61,000 people at Waverley the next week. And um, both... Both teams quite inaccurate in that first quarter, Timmy. Yeah, 1-6-2-6. The Hawks again playing Wallace and Knights, but still underdone. Um, And these two recognised stars, uh, probably probably the wrong move in the end because it became unstuck as Ken Hunter obliterated Knights. And although Wallace gained many possessions, the gutsy sentiment was a yard too slow on several occasions against the fleet-footed Blues. The Hawks threw away numerous chances in the third quarter. For instance, Buccanara missed a couple of sitters. Yeah. Um, and they could have drawn ahead, but they didn't. Carlton's strength was its ability to hold possession. And once Hawthorne's renowned tackling and vigour waned, the Blues dictated the terms with apparent ease. Bizasto was back uh, in dangerous form. And the Blues won by... 31 points. 31 points, yeah. Yeah, so 8-15 Hawthorne's 63 points there to Carlton's 13-16-94. So as you said, quite inaccurate from both sides. But... Uh, not too bad, and which knocks Hawthorne out and puts Carlton into the grand puts final. Carlton into the grand final against Richmond. Well, they're one of their rivals from the uh, 70s. Yeah, yeah, we know about the uh, 73, 72, we and 73 grand finals. We certainly, yeah, yeah, exactly. So, in front of 107,000 people at the MCG, the week, the week later, we have a Richmond facing off against Carlton. Now, 
before this game gets underway, Mick Malthouse had to prove his fitness. Yep. He had his shoulder, he hurt his shoulder. So he was put through a gruelling test by Coach Francis Burke. In front of a crowd of onlookers, he had to again and again tackle Francis Burke, like full ball, full ball. So many times that eventually he broke down again and missed the game. So he probably could have got away with it. Probably, but Pushed Francis Burke hard. was really pushing the case. And yeah, well... You want to make sure you got... I mean, if you've got these players who are ready, you want to make sure you've got everyone going at 100%, yeah, exactly. don't you? Yeah. Um, so let's, <coughs> let's put up our old phone and chat to uh, Carlton Captain. It's no longer a way back when. Way, no, way just our, it's just an old phone. Our old, our old rotary dial phone. Yeah. Let's do it. Uh, so, um, welcome back to our little podcast here. A back-to-back captain of the Blues, Mike Fitzpatrick. Hello again, folks. You might need to talk up a bit. It's pretty noisy here. <laughs> a well-earned win. It was a seesawing game today, wasn't it? We took the initiative, then lost it, then regained it. Then hung on with the teeth to finish the game off. Mate, so after winning the 1981 Premiership, how long did you get to celebrate uh, that one before you turned your attention to this season? Well, the die was probably cast midweek after the last flag. We were at Princess Park having a quiet beer and watching a replay of the game. And when it ended, Parko just said to us, gee, it's a good feeling, isn't it? Sitting around enjoying this. Now you know what you've got to do to make it two in a row. And all of a sudden, we can feel the pressure coming on. Well, he certainly has made his mark at the Blues over the last couple of seasons, hasn't he? In the two years of Ben at Carlton, we've not lost one game when all the players worked hard and never stopped having a go. But it wasn't quite as easy a season, this one. I guess reigning Premier, everyone's gunning for you. The target's on your back. The pressure's really on. Where I really felt the pressure was in the last three games of the season. Leading into the finals, we were not assured of being top three. We need to be in the top three to have a good shot at the Premiership. Um, Mike, it wasn't too long ago you convinced yourself and I think the match committee that playing you in the forward line was a good idea. I did. Thinking being, it was in the team's best interest if I spent more time in the forward line than in the ruck. Part of that came from my realisation that the team would be better balanced with Warren Jones in the ruck and me up forward. And I guess the other part was my nagging Achilles tendon. That would not stand up to a full day on the ball. And what do you know? I was right. Late in the last quarter, my Achilles was shot. Mm. Uh, those last three games were against Richmond, North and Fitzroy. No easy games by any stretch. Yep. Three tough games to finish the home and away season. If we had lost any of those games, we would have lost the top three berths. But we won them all quite convincingly too. So you finished third in the ladder, two games behind the Tigers on top. Uh, your first final was a pretty convincing win over the Hawks. Well, the first half was close, but we really turned it on. Like only Carlton know how to do in the third quarter. 11 goals to three. Yeah, but it wasn't without its losses. I mean, you guys lost to two uh, vital players in Bazusto and the Dominator, out for one and two weeks, respectively. Yeah, that was a loss. But all good teams can cover losses like that. Although it was unfortunate, we took it as an opportunity. I guess another positive from the first week of the finals that your bogey team, Essendon, was bundled out of the finals. Yeah, that was a bonus. We did expect to meet them at some stage in September, but not having to face them was all a bonus. But then Richmond just seemed to have the better of you in that second semi-final. What happened there? Well, it was a setback. And that meant taking on the Hawks again. It was a dour struggle. But in the end, it was another third quarter burst which won us the match. And uh, Curly Austin did quite the job on lethal, didn't he? My word. The second time in two weeks, he's put the clamps on him. That was a vital move in our win. 
So you had another shot at the Tigers today, and the win meant that the Dominator would be able to play. Yeah, we were very happy he was back in for the grand final. Mate, and should we quickly mention Rod Austin? Uh, mate, what was the reason he didn't play today, especially after his job on Lee Matthews? Oh, poor Curly. And this is probably breaking news because no one knew about it during the week. But at training last Sunday, he and Frank Machasani were having a game of soccer and they were both going at 100%. And Curly accidentally copied a kick in the, copped a kick in the thigh. And he's pretty much been in hospital ever since. He will probably take the cup around to his place later on tonight. Speaking of breaking news, is it true that Bruce Dool was also in hospital this week? Wow, whoever your sources is right on the money. Yeah, he's been in hospital on Wednesday and Thursday, having some scans and explained. But he was never not going to play. So, uh, talking of um, other guys being left out, I guess, we've got to talk about Marchesani. Now, he and David Clark both got left out of the team today, but still ran out onto the ground with the team. What, what was that about? Well, those two have been a big part of our season. I mean, one of them has still experienced the thrill of grand final day. I also suspect it was a way of keeping the Tigers selectors guessing through the week as well. What was the mood like in the rooms, especially knowing the Tigers had beaten you only a fortnight ago? Well, there was a little bit of talk in the rooms prior to the game about how nervous everybody was. I guess it was based on the view that while we believed we could match them, we weren't quite sure if we could beat them. How did Parker try to inspire you before the game? Before we were ready to run on the ground, we had one more view of the aftermath of our 1981 grand final win. The presentation of the victory medals, the raising of the cup, the lap of honour, the winner's spoils. I guess he wanted to remind us what was on the line. Now, I think we noticed this on the TV. You seemed to stop just short of coming onto the ground in the race. What was, what was going on up there? Well, Parker suspected that Richmond would physically get into us. So he stopped us in the race and he just reminded us that if one of our small boys went down, and there was a good chance of that happening today, but when it happened, he wanted us to turn around and knock the bloke out that was standing next to us. And when he wakes up and asks what that was for, we needed to tell him that that was for our little mate down on the ground. Mate, and your boys started like a house on fire with an early jump on the Tigers. Yeah, someone had said earlier, I can't remember who it was, that if we could have had 10 of the hardest minutes, we could either break them or we're stuck. So we threw caution of the wind and Jono kicked the opening goal. Then Harms got one. And Mike, you helped Rod Ashman with the third goal of the match. Mm, I saw the empty goals and heard Ashy call. I swung the boot and hoped for one or the other. And lucky Ashy marked it. It was an easy shot on goal. We got an 18-point jump, which ended up being the final margin. So around this stage, the physicality we always see in grand finals reared its head um, when Alex Marku was knocked over by Mark Lee near Bay 16. He was. We all ran in to remonstrate and there was a bit of a blue. There were brawls everywhere and I haven't a clue who started them, but by the time that quarter ended, there was a lot of frayed tempers out there. The ghost, Jim Jess, wasn't shy and put Ken Hunter off the ground with a really superb shirt front that we couldn't fold. And there was one player who followed those instructions you talked about, wasn't there? There was. Mario Bortolotto. He turned around and clocked David Cloak. Told him that it was for his little mate on the ground. Mate, Ditchburn was also in a bit of trouble? Yeah, he went for a mark and fell heavily. And then I think Martello's knee clipped him, knocking him out. So we were down to 19 players already. Now, KB started well. He kicked an important goal in the opening quarter, but Parko made the right moves and he managed to shut KB down for the game. How, how did you see that play out? Bartlett gave Macca to slip a couple of times on the half-forward flank and the message came out for Harms to do a straight rotation with Macca and he kept KB in check for the rest of the game. Hey, but about the same time, the Tigers were well and truly back in this game. It was game on. 
If not for a late goal in the quarter to Jono, the Tigers would have been in the lead. Instead, it was up by four points. The Tigers started the second quarter the better side. Two goals to Cloak. Uh, McClure had a chance to get one back, but he tripped over his own feet. It appeared you were a bit shell-shocked. The game was played in five-minute segments, in a way. We'd take control, then Richmond would, would, and so on. When our turn came against Pazusto, took a screamer and helped set up a Kenny Sheldon for a goal. Fortunately, we kicked a couple before the half-time bell. Matt, and Richmond's Bruce Tempany copped a broken arm. That was a sickening incident, Macca. I think threw his boot at a loose ball and got him a ripper. I suppose that evened things up for us, with Fitchburn being out earlier. Tigers led by 11 points at half-time, but looked to have weathered Carlton's best shot and be in complete control of the game. At half-time, I looked around at blokes thinking, we're gone, because it was a very physical game. Blokes were sore, and there were lots of ice packs. We looked budgeted because the previous week we played against Hawthorne at Waverley which was a great game, and there was some concern that the game had taken too much out of us. So, talk about this. At half-time, did Parker address some of the ways that Richmond had run over you in that quarter? Mm, they weren't all that far ahead. Each of the incidents that were costly, costly from Carlton's point of view, we gave them, I think, at least four goals. I mean, literally gave them by stupidity in our eagerness to do things that the coach had been asking. We gave unnecessary 15s and unnecessary free kicks. I don't know that Richmond gave us too many like that, but we really had to work. So the second half began, it was more the same rough stuff. Landy elbowed Marku in the head, but Carlton stood their ground. We did, and bit by bit we started to control the play around the ground more. Phil Malin started it all with a goal, and we started rolling. And you managed to kick that goal to give your boys a one-point lead, and then suddenly I get a stripper or a naked woman appeared on the ground? At that point, Warren Jones had gone into the ruck, and we were really on a roll. And Warren was playing the best game of his life, and suddenly this lady runs onto the ground and she goes straight to Bruce Sewell. And so Bruce goes into the middle, she probably distracted Jones a bit. Probably not what you want at that moment of the game. It threw a spanner in the works, because we were just starting to have a bit of a run on. She came on and upset our run. Mate, I did it though? Because the record shows that the Blues kicked uh, the next five goals and the Tigers none. Um, we heard. Apparently, Tigers president Ian Wilson was screaming blue murder from the stands. I reckon he thought the incident uh, was orchestrated and it cost his team the quarter. <laughs> uh, well, when the umpires bothered to look around for the ball to restart the game, the tensions and concentration had gone. Richmond lost the plot. It took us five or so minutes to get going again. It certainly was a major interruption and we'll probably go down in grand final folklore. But the Blues got going again with more goals and you, Mike, were involved in all of it, really playing a captain's game. I tried to lead from the front, but it wasn't just me. Kenny Hunter was firing, which was huge considering his big head knock early on. Perovic, Ashman, they all stood up to try to get us over the line. Mate, so with a 17-point lead at three-quarter time, what was the coach's message with the game very much still alive? At three-quarter time, Parkin kept the group huddled together. He spoke in a low, controlled voice until near the end, when his parting words broke away from the huddle. He said something like, keep the mental level up, remain aggressive and attack for 30 minutes. Now the Tigers never say die attitude was there for all to see in the last quarter. They kicked the first two goals and the match was alive. It was on. Four minutes into the quarter, they were within five points and pushing hard. Then Bruce Dool brought off an amazing save which stopped Richmond taking the lead, and who knows if that taste of success might have continued their onslaught. And then you limped off, like you told us. That Was that, that Achilles, just no good? 
I wish I could have stayed on, but I was done. So you had to watch on as Marcoux goaled on the run and then McConville sealed the game with another goal. It was a Carlton flag again. It was. What a win. It was truly a great grand final. If you had known all the ingredients that you would truly want, you had everything. It was a really hard slog. And what a absolutely sensational victory. Uh, the Blues going back to back for the first time since World War I. You must be so proud as the captain of this uh, fantastic club. I think we can now all hold our heads high and probably this group of players can count themselves probably the best side. And that's not just one that I've played in either. Because we had you know, people like David Clark, who I really felt for today, who we couldn't fit in. Frank Marquez and, of course, Curly Austin and Jeff Sutterby. Two years in a row they both missed and have both done an enormous amount to make sure we got hit today. And what are your thoughts on Morris Rioli winning the uh, best and fairest and Norm Smith medal, a player from the losing side? Morris's first half was outstanding. Kicked three goals early, I think. The dominator tackled him at one stage when they were out on the members' wing and he hurt himself and went off for a while. But I thought surely Wayne, I thought surely Wayne Johnson was deserving. It's not harm for the job he did on KB. Can you compare today's flag to the other two you've won, Mike? All three, all three flags were different, and I wouldn't trade any of them. Today's was one we are really proud of because we weren't favourites, and it was this constant criticism of the team that we just weren't tough enough. After that, it was pretty hard to argue that point anymore. So, a few days to relax after last year's flag. How long will you get to uh, bask in the glow of back-to-back flags? Probably not too long. Parkin is asking for three in a row. Already calling it the next challenge. <laughs> well, best of luck with that one, Mike. <laughs> Thanks, lad. All right. Uh, so, goal kickers from that game were Wayne Johnson 2, Fitzpatrick 2, Ashman McConville 2, one each to Harms, Hunter, Bazasto, Maku, McClure and Malin. Really shared around. They, they did, didn't they? Richmond, uh, we got Bartlett, Cloak and Rioli with three singles to Jess, Reigns and Waitman. Mm. Best for Carton, Johnson, Perovic, Fitzpatrick, Maku, Harms, Hunter, Duel, English, Ashman. Um, yeah. So a few little points of interest here. So our first Norm Smith going to a losing player. Okay, and also on that, that's his third best on ground in a grand final in a row. So oh, in Perth, in Perth, yeah. In WA, he won the Simpson Medal for South Fremantle in the 1980 and 1981 Grand Finals. Really? So that put him up there with uh, Dusty and Perth. Dusty and Percy Beams, yeah. Yep. So it was. Got well, to, doesn't it? Hey, it's got to. Yeah. Big game player. Three in a row. I mean, that's up there with Percy Jones. Yeah. Percy, Percy Beams. Beams. Yeah, he had three in a row as well. Yeah. I mean, Dusty had a break in between his yeah. two. Little rest. Yeah, little rest. Um, Helen DeMarco, the stripper. Yes. It was from uh, Adelaide's Crazy Horse Club. She was paid to streak, apparently, with those organising it, even engaging the city's law firm. Frank Galboli, QC, represented her in court, and she was fined $1,000. Following that... Frank Galboli from um, Collingwood. Yeah. Um, she was offered thirty. In the weeks preceding, she was offered a $30,000 contract to strip at Crazy Horse in Hindley Street. <laughs> um, and here's a quite a... Probably not an appropriate comment by Jack Hamilton, who claimed that DeMarco had put Tasmania on the football map. <laughs> oh, you couldn't get away with that these days. No. Um, <laughs> David Parkin became only the second coach to take a club to back-to-back flags in his first two years in charge. Do you know the other one? Um, no. Dan Minogue of Richmond. Of um, Carlton now overtake Collingwood for most premierships. That stings. Collingwood have held that title alone since 1929, so a total of 54 years as the top side. 
as of 2022, Carlton have had the most premierships for 43 seasons. Hey, okay. So they're going down. Um, of Carlton, the following players became triple premiership players after this. Buckley, Fitzpatrick, Harms, Johnson, McClure, McConville, Marku and Sheldon. Bruce Dool became a four-time premiership player. Oh, yeah, of he course. Was yeah. Um, a few other little bits and pieces here. We've got another draft at the end of the season, which we might talk about next episode. Yep. Um, also, in December of 82, VFL Commissioner, the VFL Commissioner says that applications have been received for teams to come from WA, South Australia and the ACT. The article quotes Hamilton as saying that the ACT will almost certainly be represented in the VFL in the future. <laughs> We're still waiting. Um, so other results as well. Geelong defeated, Rich, sorry, Geelong defeated St Kilda in the reserves. 132 to 83. Mm-hmm. Fitzroy defeated Melbourne in the in the under 19, 139 to 128. Richmond won the McClellan Trophy. Yes. Um, so I suppose we better wrap this up. We absolutely better. Wooden Spoon this year went to Footscray with a very dismal year. Yeah, I can't believe how many games I got smashed. Yeah, by. unfortunately. Uh, and our lead goal kicker for the year was. Malcolm Blight with 103, as we mentioned. Uh, 99 in the home and away season. Is that right? Mm, I think less than that because he took two finals to kick. He's one right, so somewhere in the 90s. Yeah. Um, the Brownlow medalist went to Brian Wilson of Melbourne. Yes. Um, what else have we got? The High score went high to Essendon. High score was Essendon, was it? I'm assuming. Um, let me have a look. High scores, Essendon, 32 goals, 16, 208, correct. Um, the most points scored was Simon Beasley of Footscray with 64. My rookie of the year. Now, the reason that Rioli can't achieve this is because he's 24. Yeah. He's way too old. You must be under the age of 21 at the 1st of January and have played no more than 10 AFL, VFL games at the start of the season. They're the rules. Okay, they're the rules. They're the current rules, the current aren't rules, they? rules, which yep. I'm applying yep. when I'm doing this. Good. Um, so, rookie of the year in 1982 was Bruce Abernathy of North Melbourne. Okay. Second was Richard Loveridge, and third was Brad Gotch. Shame that Dermy didn't get a get a run on. Can't 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 get it. Well, he could. He's qualifying for the next for season. next year. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So, I mean, he's up there. Well, with his one game, it looked pretty good, didn't he? Mm. Yeah. Well, we'll see what Spoiler, happens. He doesn't win it. <laughs> I haven't given it to him. <laughs> um, and um, hello, I've got some other ones here. Oh, got yep. Mark of the year, Jeff Rain to Richmond. Goal of the year, Mick Conlon of Fitzroy. And, and, our, and our premiership tallies we've just spoken about. Our, our new premiers are the same as last year. Carlton. Yeah. Premiership tallies as of 1982. Carlton, 14. Collingwood, 13. Essendon, 12. Melbourne, 12. Richmond, 10. Fitzroy, 8. Geelong, 6. Hawthorne, 4. South Melbourne, 3. North Melbourne, 1. Sorry, North Melbourne, 2. Footscray, 1. St Kilda, 1. Everyone's got one. They do. Oh, where's my uh, my retirees? All right. So some retirees from 1982. We've got Malcolm Blight, absolute legend with North Melbourne with two yeah. flags, Brownlow and Coleman, done it all. Barry Breen, St Kilda's only 300 gamer at this stage with one flag and the last premiership player to keep playing. Phil Carmen of Collingwood, North Melbourne, Essendon and Melbourne. Norman Goss, Southland Hawthorne, he played in one flag. Crackers Keenan as well. He was a one-flag winner with Melbourne. I played for Melbourne, North and Essendon. We've got David Clark, John Casson of Essendon, North and Fitzroy, Ted Whitten Jr. hanging out the boots, 
Collingwood stand Magro, Kelvin Matthews, Lethal's brother, who played for Hawthorne and Geelong. Four, ga- four flag, 222 gamer Brent Crosswell. Yeah. Carlton, North Melbourne, Melbourne. And Greg Wells of Melbourne and Carlton also missing out. Oh, not missing out. Finishing up. Finishing up, yeah. yeah. Um, and best name when I get there. So best name, I mean, it's the crackers have to be right up there. It's a great name. Um, no, it's got to be Ted Fridge, Ted actually. Fridge. <laughs> Ted Fridge, there you go. It's just a great nickname as well, like The Fridge. You can't yeah. do much better, can you? No, I suppose not. I guess that's 1982, year of my birth. Yes. All wrapped up. It's I'm, not history anymore, I'm, Timmy. I'm alive for all this yeah, stuff. Yeah. I, I don't remember the stripper, but it happened. I was, I was alive. It happened for it, yeah. yeah. Um, so, yeah, 82. Just getting closer and closer to the present. We're only 40 years away. Jeez, scary. <laughs> so the 83 episode will be our final one for the year before our wrap-up episode. Yes, looking forward to that. Yes. Who's going to make our team of the year? It's always an interesting the, uh, time. Team of the 70s and 80s. Lots to debate. Yes, lots to debate. Yeah, at least it's only you and me now. Yeah, I don't know whether it's... Would you call... We can talk about this later, but would you call it the team of the 80s yet? Considering no, we've only got two teams. Yeah, exactly. That'll be next year's team. Yeah. Uh, so... Brilliant. So until next time, hooroo. To find out more about the Kick to Kick team and the sources we use, visit our website, www.kicktokickpodcast.com. You can contact us via email at kicktokickpodcast at gmail.com or find us on Twitter and Instagram under at kicktokickpod. Thanks so much for listening.